The Evolve to Succeed podcast, where founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and experts are interviewed to explore the link between personal and business success. We will also investigate and establish the need for ongoing personal development, accountability, and support. The objective is to inspire you, the audience, to be better in life and in business. Welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My guest today is Louis Barnett, who started his own chocolate business aged just 12. We're going to hear his fascinating story about how he grew that business and became the youngest supplier to Sainsbury's and Waitrose. He's an interesting character with a fascinating journey about self-belief and overcoming the odds. On this podcast, Louis gives us some interesting views on his education system. What saddens me is so many students and children, if you ask them, you know, what is it that you want to do in their teens, they just don't really know. They can't really give you that solid answer. And so I think that there definitely could be a lot more done in the education system to allow the creative thinkers and kids who aren't necessarily academically strong to look at other aspects of of learning and developing. He talks about the state of young entrepreneurship in the UK. I feel like there's an awful lot of white noise and there's an awful lot of get-rich-quick schemes and there's a lot of young entrepreneurs being brought into um, these kind of Ponzi schemes or get-rich-quick schemes. And I think that's what makes me most sad, really, is that I have always seen it, as as I say to everyone, I'm an entrepreneur by default. I turned a passion into a product and into a business and I I do believe that that's one of the reasons why we were successful and different. I think a lot of younger people now are just looking at business as it's just a way to make money. And delves into the reasons why a business community has never been more important than now. It's ever more important to build those relationships because much like friendships, when the going gets tough, the people who you've really got the relationships with and have made the effort with, they're the ones who are still there. You know, they're the ones that we're still in contact with. And, and I, I think it's very much like that with our businesses, that we need to realise more as a business community that we are a community. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Louis, and welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Hi there, Warren. Great to be here. So, Louis, usually right at the start of the podcast, I start with a very simple question to all of the guests around when did you start your entrepreneurial journey and were you always destined to run your own business? Now, Louis, clearly the answer for you is going to be somewhat different to that that I normally get. So, uh, when did you start your business and why? Right. So the short version is when I was 11 years old, I was diagnosed with dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, short-term memory loss syndrome, ADHD and autism. So a sort of whole raft of different things. And at the time, so this is going back to 2002, 2003, there just wasn't really support there for those kind of conditions in school. My parents then ended up after a while taking me out of school to be home educated. We lived in a small village. There weren't really any other schools around. 
And I basically first started work at a falconry center voluntary. So got my first experience at age 11 of, of, I suppose you could call it the real world. The guy who was running it, ran the business himself. So I got to hear lots of terminology of sort of invoices and clients and customer service and, and all these sort of basic tenants of business. And then alongside that, I'd always been keen in cooking and baking so as a kind of home education project, started cooking and baking for sort of family and friends, ended up supplying to a couple of local restaurants. And, and that's really where it started. So I've always said to people, I'm an entrepreneur by default, in the sense that I left school, had to create something and sort of chocolates and cakes was really the first thing that I threw myself into at a deeper you know, in a deeper way and loved it, became very passionate about it and, and sort of ended up building a business out of it. Well, we will come back to the chocolate story in a moment, but I just wanted to ask you a really simple question around that piece around homeschooling and the effect it had on you. Clearly it had an effect on what you ultimately went on to do, but what effect do you think homeschooling has had on your outlook on life? And do you think it made you think in more unconventional ways? I would say so because I I think the first thing that I went through and I since I've spoken at a lot of kind of homeschool events and and to lots of parents in the homeschooling world and I, and I think there's a there's a time where as a kid in school or a student you learn in the way that is presented to you so everything's planned you you're not really thinking about what you want to learn you just turn up and the books are put in front of you and and lessons are created around the, the rest of the students. But when you start to be homeschooled, um, at, at least I was very lucky that my parents were open enough to sort of almost say, what is it that you actually want to do? And, and we need to keep a general education, but we'd rather theme the bulk of it around what you're really passionate about. So I think it took me probably six months to a year to kind of program myself and stop waiting for people to tell me what to do to actually figure out that you know there's actually some responsibility around what I'm doing and what I'm learning and, and you know there was a, a fear somewhere in the back of my mind that because I'd come out of school at that time I was going to probably have to do something un, you know non-traditional anyway because um, because of my sort of conditions I decided not to do exams so still today I've got no GCSEs A levels degrees you know any, any sort of traditional educational background so um so yeah it definitely made me take responsibility for what I wanted to do what I wanted to learn at a much earlier age and I guess allowed me to funnel my passion and, and really discover what I what I loved in life Louis, that just showed great maturity at such a young age. And just that ability to think and take responsibility for yourself would have made a difference. And I have to say, Louis, it just shows some great parenting by your mum and dad. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I completely agree. I mean, I think I was very lucky that my parents really allowed me to to focus on what I wanted to do and what I was passionate about. Um, I, I think I'd always been a bit of an odd kid anyway. I hadn't really ever fitted in. I was bullied quite badly. Um, and, you know, that was kind of one of the reasons as well I was taken out of school. But it, I think all of those things mixed together forced me to to just see life in a slightly different way. And, and um, you know, like I said, I, I think it was that responsibility and my parents sort of pushing me to um, to take ownership of my education was, um, you know, I, I'm very lucky to have had them do that with me. Louis, that forms an incredible backdrop to what we're going to talk about now and go and explore more further, which is your own 
journey as a business owner. But again, just before we do that, a piece around the education system. And I suppose if you had that magic wand, if you were the Secretary of State for Education, do you think more needs to be done in traditional schooling to encourage more original thought? And what would you do to make that happen? Sure. So uh, I, I I do agree. And I think what has been really odd for me over the years is I started publicly speaking, actually, when I was working at the Falconry Centre. So that so I started technically public, publicly speaking at 11. And then as the business started and things started to grow, I actually started to be asked to go into schools, which to me was was a really odd situation. You know, here's me leaving school and now I'm actually being asked to go into schools and to talk about my journey. So, you know, what I find most fascinating is over the years and, and having been speaking in school since about the age of sort of 13, 14, what I've really noticed is that I would say as a broad spectrum, children and students beneath the age of, I would say probably the teens. So, you know, maybe talking sort of 11, 12 and under if you ask kids what they want to do, they'll often have an answer for you. You know, it, it might be a vet, it might be a firefighter, it, you know, they'll come up with some kind of answer. And then something happens within the teen period where, you know, psychologically, you know, that's what research is saying that kids and students start to attach to their peers rather than parents. And so the education at that point, I think, becomes more of kind of social skills rather than actually about the education and passion. And what saddens me is so many students and children, if you ask them, you know, what is it that you want to do in their teens? They just don't really know. They can't really give you that solid answer. And so I think that there definitely could be a lot more done in the education system to allow the creative thinkers and kids who aren't necessarily academically strong to look at other aspects of of learning and developing you know and i think that's exactly what i found so i think that a lot more you know creative thinking a lot more problem solving and i think the other thing that's really noticeable in education in general all the way from school secondary and university is employability skills you know a lot of the students that i talk to and work with actually don't have a lot of those employability skills and they sort of almost get out of uni and then realize actually a lot of the things that I've learned are are good and it's a good basis for understanding but there's a huge spectrum of other skills that we need to master to really I guess be successful in life so I think I think it's multi-levels it's children and students need to have a more bespoke and specific education around what it is that they want to do. And I think there's probably a lot of things that the education system could do to help that. And then second to that is learning these finer skills in life and, and business. And, you know, I was so lucky that I learned that from the age of 11. So, you know, I knew how credit cards worked and mortgages, and I, I had an understanding of, of what you might call real practical life. Um, and, and I think that's another aspect that children have lost, I think, particularly over the last 20, 30 years, you know, even home ed, you know, most of my friends who are obviously now, um, you know, going into their thirties, they still don't know how to cook properly. And again, I, I was lucky I was home educated. So 
I learned to cook with my mom. I learned to cook from recipe books and, and then obviously through, through my career. So even simple little things like that, that I think would make big differences in people's lives. The education system, I think, needs to be a bit more broad and, and start to look at what we actually need to progress in life. What a comprehensive response there, Lorraine. I completely <laughs> agree wholeheartedly with what you have to say. And, you know, there is this sometimes this inclination that, you know, academia for academia's sake and that we're not teaching our children at school some of those practical lessons that they need in life. You know, I left school at uh, 16. I did do my GCSEs, but, and obviously went on to do my professional qualifications, but with supportive parents around me as well I learned more I think in those latter years before I left school and in the immediate aftermath of leaving school at 16 about people and how to get to know people how to build relationships and those skills are still with me to this day and I think one of the challenges that a lot of business owners would say and face is that we bring some bright and intelligent people into our businesses and perhaps with relevant degrees but they lack those employability and life skills and more does need to be done in education such that people come into our businesses with the right skills uh, to succeed and not, you know, put on the employer who employs an individual for their first job to teach them those skills. So as I say, wholeheartedly agree uh, with what you say there, Louis. Um, Let's get back to your story. Um, So the business was called Chocolate, but not spelt in the traditional way, Louis. No, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So it was actually something my dad noticed when, so this was sort of 11, 12, when I was writing down um, chocolate, uh, chocolate, you know, spelling it out, obviously due to the kind of conditions that I had, a lot of my writing was was pre- pretty unlegible even to me. And my dad noticed that I was spelling it C-H-O-K-O-L-I-T. Um, and, and I guess not really even noticing that I was doing it when I then started making sort of cakes and, and things for family and friends. Um, I, I guess the name was just natural. We just said, actually, it's, it's really nice. It represents my kind of dyslexia and, and all the conditions I'd had and, and what had taken me up to that point in starting the company, really. So, Louis, how did you develop the business from, you know, operating in your kitchen with your mum and dad? You're following a passion. You're learning about cooking. You're developing products and providing them to friends and family. But the business did really take off quite quickly and rapidly from there. So what is the story and just how did you achieve that? Yeah, so um, it was a it was a very sort of interesting journey. And I think, you know, there was an element of it that was right time, right place, right product. So when I started making uh, first cakes and other kind of bakery products, chocolate was just becoming really trendy. So we're sort of going back now to um, 2003, 2004, the, a lot of the big supermarkets were starting to stock their own branded Belgian chocolates. It was the time when artisan food was becoming more and more trendy. A lot of the supermarkets and co-ops and things like that were doing local food initiatives. So, you know, we were right in the middle of all of that happening. And so I remember being asked to make a cake for an auntie's birthday. She wanted a chocolate cake. That was the trendy thing. And so that's really where it all came from. And and I'd always had this real love and passion for chocolate. I remember probably it would have been about 2000. 
three joining the chocolate tasting club um, at the time that Angus Thurwell had started up and and really starting to explore chocolate as a product. So I started making uh, cakes. I said chocolate themed, and then it moved into chocolates and. Things grew quite quickly. I lived in a very small local village. You can probably tell by my accent in the West Midlands. So as as people know who live in villages, word spreads fast. And I think because of my age, you know, lots of the village wanted to support me. So I started selling more and more cakes. And then I remember going into my local Waitrose store and they had this big um, display unit and it was all local products. So I walked up to the local store manager in, in Stourbridge in the West Midlands and said, look, you know, Hey, I'm a, I'm a young guy. I make chocolates. Do you want some? Um, <laughs> he of course sort of said, well, that's not quite how it works. Um, and I, I was basically given an address for the post office of Waitrose. And I just come up with a new product that I thought might um, gained a bit of attention and that was making the box itself out of chocolate. So the sort of strap line was eat the chocks, then the box and the box and the lid were edible made out of chocolate and with nine chocolates inside. So I sent that down to Waitrose. Within three days, I got a call. I sat in front of the head bar at Waitrose as my parents walked out the door and sort of he looks at me in shock and asked if they were going to the car for something. And obviously I explained at that point it was my business. So I became their youngest ever supplier at 13. We got an order for 165 chocolate boxes, so moved from the kitchen into the garage. Just about got them made for the order, um, delivered them to Waitrose head office in early spring 2007, ready to go out for um, Valentine's, Mother's Day and Easter. And it was 165 chocolate boxes to six stores. And then um, in March, I attended the International Food and Drink Expo in London. We had just enough money to afford a one meter square stand. At the time, I wasn't even old enough to have a stand on my own. So my dad took some time off work and went down with me. And um, while I was there, I ended up um, meeting Sainsbury's, pitching to the buyer team and became their youngest ever supplier at 14. And, and that's that's really when things started to take off, if you like. Um, I started to go and see Waitrose. They launched me at their um, summer for Christmas press show. And long story short, we ended up getting a combined order from Waitrose and Sainsbury's of 100,000 boxes. We moved into a local production site in Bridge, North Shropshire, 10 local staff, uh, bought two massive 100 kilo machines from Belgium and started to produce in June. Just about got it all delivered, worked 16 hour days, seven days a week for months and months on end. And so, um, so yeah, January 07, in, uh, we delivered 165 chocolate boxes to Waitrose. And then by December of that year, we delivered 100,000, 40,000 to Waitrose and 60,000 to Sainsbury's. And um, yeah, my life was never quite the same um, <laughs> since. Yeah, I can really imagine life hasn't quite been the same since. And that is an incredible story of growth. And do you think because you were so young, Louis, that there was no fear or traditional intrepidation or the thought that I can't do this was just not there or just wasn't in your mind, in your head. And do you think it was just this sense of youthful energy and passion that really took you on that journey? 100% Warren, absolutely. And, and I say this to a lot of clients, I think the best weapon that I ever had was naivety. 
Um, I, I had no preconceptions about what was possible, what wasn't. And I was actually lucky that my parents weren't from a business background. I mean, my dad was in occupational health and hygiene, which certainly came in handy. And my mom was an artist. She used to paint murals for people. So, you know, we were certainly not an entrepreneurial or business family. And I think because of that, it was just all new and exciting. And the thought of what we were doing was was kind of quite normal in a way. And, and I never really stopped to think or worry before I decided to do something. And, and I absolutely think that's why, you know, if I, had I not just walked up to that Waitrose store manager, um, it, you know, on that day and just said, hey, you know, do you want some chocolate boxes? Um, and the same with Sainsbury's when I met them, I had no presentation, no brochures, no collateral. It was literally just me, my products and, and my passion. But they would have seen your belief and passion, wouldn't they, Louis? And, you know, importantly, the thing about developing, in my opinion, any brand is that you do need a story, sure, particularly yeah. if you're an owner-managed business. And that story that you had gave the brand some authenticity. And therefore, once the big supermarkets understood that the product was actually good, you had something innovative in the edible chocolate box, and they believed that you could deliver, then you start to have all they need to put something that you're offering on their shelves. No, no I, I mean, all I was going to say, I think as well, and, and it's something that I do say to clients is that I think it's really important as well to have multiple points of difference. And I think that I've always found I did that right from the very start. You know, I had my story and as you said, the brand was all based around me and, and what I'd done and my background. But we also had lots of elements of difference, I think, than competitors around us. So we, right from the start, I really wanted to innovate and chocolate had become a bit of an old fuddy-duddy industry, to be honest. You know, a lot of the books and, um, you know, chocolatiers that I was in touch with, that I was learning from, it was all very, very traditional. And so I, right from the start, wanted to do something innovative and untraditional. So we did a lot of flavors that were very untypical, very unique. And on top of that, having lived in a small village, I was very much minded around sustainability in the food system. Um, I mean, we had a field of cows over the back of where the house was. And when cows disappeared from the field, there was more stock in the butcher's shop. You know, so I, I had this sense of I had an understanding, I think, of the food system. And so we were actually the first product ever to go into um, UK supermarket shelves that use biodegradable wrapping around the chocolate boxes. But we were also the, the first product to be listed as no palm oil and no hydrogenated vegetable oils. And we were completely natural flavors and no preservatives. So I, I just always try to look for ways that, yes, my story was great and I'm not under any you know, disillusion that it didn't uh, very much help. But I also wanted to find other reasons for people to buy into the product. You know, it was natural. It was sustainable. We were really trying to do whatever we could to reduce our environmental impact. So, so like I said, we, I just wanted to find multiple levels of difference with our product. Well, by the sound of it, Louis, you certainly found that. But didn't, as I understand it, rest on your laurels. You continued to develop the business. Also, and I can really understand now why, listening to your story this morning, but in 2007, you were given the award for the National Young Entrepreneur of the Year, and a remarkable achievement. I suppose reflecting on what I've heard from you so far, it makes me stop and ask you the question that, do you think we're doing enough 
in the UK right now to encourage and support young entrepreneurs? Oh, so, yeah, in- interesting. Um, I think being an entrepreneur, particularly a young entrepreneur, I think has evolved so much. I mean, I you know, I remember in 2007 and it, and it was great. I won quite a few awards that year and, and it was brilliant. I mean, the only thing that I would say is that there weren't many of us. So it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't actually that difficult. But, you know, the, the, I mean, I, I remember going to a um, young entrepreneur sort of networking event in London in early 07. And, and there were about eight of us. And there were probably of that eight, maybe four of us under the age of 20. So, so I think that, you know, I was part of that, you know, initial cohort of younger people that were really kind of trying their hand at business. And, and a lot of the time, like me, they were kids that just didn't get on well at school. They weren't academic. And so they sort of found something that they were passionate about and turned it into a business. So I think that back then, I mean, there was absolutely no support at all. I think now there is a huge abundance of support, but I think now we've almost got another issue where I feel like there's an awful lot of white noise and there's an awful lot of get rich quick schemes. And there's a lot of young entrepreneurs being bought into these kind of Ponzi schemes or get rich quick schemes. And I think that's what makes me most sad really is that I have always seen it as a, as I say to everyone, I'm an entrepreneur by default. I turned a passion into a product and into a business. And I, I do believe that that's one of the reasons why we were successful and different. I think a lot of younger people now are just looking at business as it's just a way to make money. And, um, I think that there needs to be a lot more support and education, um, to young entrepreneurs about what business really is. And I think it's, having i think it's important to have more of a focus of long term sustainability you know it's get rich quick schemes are great but um uh, you know you may or may not make money but a lot of people lose a lot of money in in these type of businesses and and it's not sustainable you know and and the other interesting thing i've seen is that out of many of the young entrepreneurs that then started to appear over the years there's very very few of us left that are actually still in business you know i would say 90 of all the entrepreneurs that I got to know ended up, um, you know, going into other businesses and getting jobs because I just feel like they hadn't necessarily got the passion. You know, they wanted the money and they wanted the the kudos, but actually, you know, building a business is is hard work, you know, and it does take time. It is. It's tough and it's tough and it's difficult. And if you've not got that passion, you're going to find it really hard to survive. Correct. And I think that is a really interesting point that you make, Louis as I get really, really irritated and frustrated with all these get-rich-quick courses and schemes and solutions out there that just play on greed and that they purport as a result that you're going to be a business owner, you're going to become an entrepreneur, you're going to become a millionaire. Yeah. And all they really are doing those courses is making those that run those courses rich and successful, which means that they win in business and not necessarily their customers. Therefore, there needs to be more genuine education about exactly what it's like to run a business and what it really does take. So people can come up with those original thoughts, ideas, and they can pursue a passion with their eyes wide open. But there's not enough of that rhetoric out there, in my opinion. So perhaps, Louis, I should get off my high horse, uh, as I clearly agree with what you're saying. But 
how's it all going to come to an end? And how, with all that greed that's out there, is it ever going to change? Sure. I mean, I th- do you know what? I don't necessarily think it, it will come to an end, but I think that the only thing I can hope is that entrepreneurs who are out there, who are putting out positive messages, who are saying, this is just, you know, it, it's a process and it's going to take time and it could take 10 years or 20 years. And I think there are some entrepreneurs out there. I mean, I, you know, I, like everything, I don't agree with everything he says, but I think Gary Vaynerchuk makes some pretty good points and is quite contrary to some of the other um, get rich quick entrepreneurs that are out there. And, you know, that's his message is it's hard work. It takes time. That's it. There's, there's no shortcut. It's about putting out consistent value to a customer or client over and over again, year after year after year. And eventually, if you're good enough at what you do and you're passionate enough about what you do, you'll get noticed. And I think that's one of the things that I think is the most important thing to realize within business is your long-term sustainability is solely dictated by the amount of value and care that you give to your clients and customers. And and that's it. It's as simple as that. You know, I've, one of the best things that I ever learned about sales, which should not be, um, should not be hidden in, in a way is that actually people buy from people and the more cared about your clients feel, the more likely you are to keep them. And and in fact, a lot of our customers and clients, when I eventually stepped away from the chocolate business, you know, we had a huge amount of customers that had been buying off us for eight, nine, 10 years. And that was because we genuinely cared about our clients and customers. It, It wasn't about new business all the time. We actually figured out early on that it's much easier to sell to people that you're already selling to and maximize those relationships. But People will only do that if they like you. Um, and that's, you know, very much centered around what I do now is, is you know, understanding brand and consumer psychology. Um, humans like to think that we're logical and um, factual when we make decisions, but actually that's completely incorrect from my experience. You know, we are incredibly emotional and illogical beings. And I think that the quicker you can understand that, that it's about actually making friends and building relationships rather than just trying to make money. You know, like like we said before, the get rich quick schemes don't last long. You might be able to get a certain amount of customers, but thankfully now there are more and more online platforms. I mean, you know, Trustpilot and many others that very, very quickly show you now who the charlatans are. And I think it's going to become ever more transparent and noticeable to see who those people are in the future. You know, the more of these online platforms that that appear and the more transparency that's out there through the internet. And so I think that's the only thing I can hope is that eventually these young entrepreneurs will actually realize that there is so much transparency now that if you do con people out of money and, and there are get rich quick schemes, people will notice and you'll end up with a reputation um, and your business will end up, you know, being a non-starter. Thank you, Louis. Really good advice there. And let's hope that's what happens. So back to your own uh, personal story, Louis. And um, obviously, from, you know, those very humble beginnings, you went through a significant growth phase, you're already now in Sainsbury's Waitrose. Please just uh, bring us up to date with what then happened, the stories it was and how you transcended into your uh, current role as a uh, business developer, please. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it was a very interesting time because right when we got the Sainsbury's and Waitrose deal, I got a phone call as we were moving into our production unit and uh, BBC Breakfast Live wanted to come and do a feature on me live from my little chocolate factory in Bridge North. And they turned up and did three features, um, you know, one at, I think, 6.30, 7.30, 8.30 in the morning. And I think we had about two and a half thousand emails before our email server crashed and the website went down within minutes. And um, that really made a very, very large impact on my life because then following on from that every few weeks, I had a new foreign news crew turning up. I had um, news crews from India, from Japan, from the US, uh, from all over Europe. I was being interviewed all over the world. I mean, it was really, really surreal. And that started to give me a, a bit of profile to a speak about you know what I was doing in my business, but also to raise other causes and and things that I was passionate around conservation and sustainability. And so we, I then ended up getting into Selfridges as their youngest of supplier. And just as really the peak was happening, the UK recession hit in two thousand eight. You know, so I'd had all of this exposure, and we had done really well. We'd grown to about 3,000 independent retailers in the UK. And obviously we had the big supermarket stores. And I I won't go into it now, but there were a few big things that happened. We lost a huge amount of customers and we had issues with, with a couple of investors, nearly lost the business because of it and the UK recession hitting. So I had to kind of think on my feet. And because of all of the international exposure we'd had, we had started to, in a very small way, export to Eastern Europe and, and Spain and a couple of other countries. And so I, I really put this focus in the business on export. And it was a bit of a slow starter. Um, we had some limited success in, in Europe and Eastern Europe. And I think that that's probably where most people gravitate towards when they're thinking about international business in the UK. And then I took a bit of a risk in early '09 and went to the New York Fancy Fine Food Show and within 15 minutes signed a massive deal to break into 14 states of the US. So that's when things I think really changed for me and had a completely different perspective on the business and realized that actually international business was yielding far quicker and with far less effort than it was actually taking me to break into stores in in Europe and the UK. So I started to do a real export push, very much helped through the British Chamber International Network. And um, long story short, we ended up building an export portfolio of 17 countries. I was traveling all around the world. Uh, Oddly, our best export customer was Mexico. And in 2011 and 12, I moved over there for six months of the year. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was a really exciting journey. And, um, by the time that I moved away from the business, we were majority export sales. And, um, yeah, I, I had since 2008 been doing, um, consultancy and business development with other businesses first in food and beverage and hospitality. And then as I started to speak more and more, both UK and internationally, I started to work with, businesses from all sorts of sectors. And so that consultancy, my speaking business kept growing and growing, and I got more and more um, involved in it. And I think by probably 2013, 2014, I'd, I'd actually started to lose a little bit of my passion for chocolate. And I'd also had, as you can probably imagine, a few 
health concerns that were actually, I think, related to it. You know, I, I lived on sugar, chocolate and caffeine for years, burnt the candle at both ends. And so I started, I think, to lose my passion for chocolate in itself. And so by probably 2013, 14, I started more and more and in the majority to be speaking and, and working as a I don't like the word, but I guess you could say consultant, but I kind of prefer business developer, you know, really helping businesses to grow and scale. And so then in 2015, I made the decision to really move away from chocolate. Um, I sold a proportion of the business off all of our kind of private labels, uh, contracts and, um, you know, machinery and things like that. And basically just decided to focus full time on, on the speaking and business development. So I, I guess that's kind of where we're up to at, at present day. Just trying to find that moment sometimes to when let go or when to exit a business is a really difficult decision for many business owners and some of our listeners, I'm sure, are contemplating that right now. And therefore, it's really interesting to hear your honesty about, you know, how you were falling out of love with chocolate and realised that something different had to happen. Uh, but actually making a transition from from what you're doing one day to the next and 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 going particularly from owning your own product a business that you've been involved in since the age of 12 to advising others on their business from a business development perspective is a, a significant transition. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you went about doing that? Yeah, sure. So um, I think it was probably a lot easier for me because I did it over such a long period of time. I mean, like I said, I, so I started working with clients in 2008 and it was it was until early 2016 when I actually started to sort of focus on it full time. So so I had, you know, a good number of years to figure out that the thing that I actually realized that I loved most about my own business was problem solving. And the branding, marketing, consumer psychology and sales aspects, I absolutely loved that part of my business, you know, going to visit customers, building relationships, building marketing, PR and, and sort of, you know, branding. It, it really excited me. I think where I lost the passion was for chocolate particularly is it's a very difficult marketplace. And, and without boring you with all the details, the chocolate um, product in its raw state has increased in price exponentially over the last 15 years and continues to do so due to a, a number of different factors. So every six months, the chocolate price would increase and our margins would just get ever and ever smaller. And so it, it became an incredibly competitive market to be in. And I felt with the chocolate business, a lot of the time, I was just really being a busy idiot. You know, we we were selling huge quantities of product and I was going on and we were doing telesales to QVC and I was closing overseas deals. But really when it came down to it, you know, we were making pence per product and, and it just sort of took away all the shine and passion for me. But as I said, what I love doing was the business development, the marketing and the branding. And so I had always loved going into other businesses and helping them for years and years, I did it without charging just because I love doing it. And, and it was something that I really enjoyed. And I just, I guess that I figured that because of my business and, and what I'd created, I had learned many, many things in a very short period of time that allowed me to come into businesses and create real transformation. And I think that's really where it overtook um, you know, and my passion was really focused towards the, the feeling and reward of going into somebody else's business, making, you know, 
what seemed to me is some small changes and immediately seeing revenue increase it and you know business owners be be happier and more content with what they'd got so i think like i said it, it was it took a long time for me to transition into that mindset and it still probably took about 18 months to 2 years after going full time to really get myself into that mindset uh, completely and i i don't think that it's necessarily the end of my story when it comes to products. I'm, I'm actually working on something at the moment, uh, which I'm looking to launch within the next couple of years. But but like I said, I, I think I have a real love and passion and drive to help others grow and, and scale businesses through through problem solving. Um, I said that's what I lo- loved in my own business, and um, now I get to do it all the time, which is um, which is a bit of a dream job, to be honest. Louis, that just start to strains one of the things I wanted to explore with you is that was whether you were ever going to have your own product again because obviously you spent so many years passionate about products and having a product business to advising others and getting involved on in so many different ways in other people's businesses you know is product still important to you and you know could you see a time when you would launch your own product so perhaps some more thoughts on that please Louis. Sure yeah and and I think that I've got an ADHD brain anyway, so I, I, you know, I need lots of things going on at once, and I think that's kind of how I function best in in a sort of weird way. So, I think yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be a mix of of multiple things. Um, I mean, obviously, we were looking at launching the new product business, which, which all I'll say is that it's another very, very heavily based sustainable business centered around um, building funds and raising awareness to conservation worldwide. So it's it's continuing really on from the chocolate business, but just it's not in food. So we were obviously looking at launching that in autumn this year, but with everything that's gone on, I guess I'll just have to see um, at what point that will be. So I would love to get involved in product-based businesses. And obviously I would say probably 40 to 50% of the clients I work with are, um, you know, B2C businesses, product-based. So, so yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I'm lucky as well that within the consultancy, it's given me a really good broad spectrum of, of understanding in business and, and industries. But, um, but yeah, I, I certainly can't, I think, keep away forever from having my own product. There's, there's nothing quite like building something from the, from the ground up and, um, and, and selling something that is tr- truly created by you. Thank you, Louis. I look forward to learning more from you about the new products when we can hear more. Uh, but sounds very intriguing and interesting. Um, a more personal question now, Louis, if you don't mind, is I would like just to explore with you in your mind. You've been really open uh, in your discussion today about your own conditions and just the impacts those conditions have had on you in terms of your uh, business life and where it's perhaps been a benefit and where it's perhaps been a hindrance. Do you mind sharing some of your thoughts, please? Sure. So, so I think, I mean, I, I don't quite know where I'd start. I mean, I, I personally think the only reason I got where I was was because of those conditions. I've always seen them as an ability rather than a disability. I and mean, if, you know, even if you look at 
neurological research into what we now know as neurological diversity, which is the banner term for all of these conditions. The brain of people with ND works in a completely different way instead of firing neurons in a linear pattern. So if, if you give somebody who's, as they call neurotypical, you give them similar problems, their neurons will fire continually in, in a respectively similar pattern. When you give similar problems to people with neurological diversity, Every time, no matter how similar the problems are, the neurons fire in a different and unique way. So um, people with neurological diversity are just better problem solvers. And I think that what I found interesting is over the years is that more and more call to recognize it within human resources and um, in larger companies. So I, I've done some work with Deloitte and Ernest Young over the years in actually them realizing that having a certain percentage of neurological diverse team members within the team, it, it's about 30 to 40% of a team actually makes the team more productive, better problem solving, more efficient and, and more profitable. So I think that it's all about finding balance in life. And, and there's many things that I think that it has taught me. I think probably one of the greatest things is because my memory is so terrible and I had struggled for years to organize myself, what I ended up getting into very early on was software tools because I, I realized that software could fill the gaps where my brain was sort of struggling. So we we became a paperless office um, in 09. So we were sort of very much ahead of the curve in integrating digital technology into the business. And, and I've actually recently been looking at all the different technology I've used over the last um, probably eight or nine years. And, and I came up with a list of 108 pieces of technology. So I probably use about 15 on a regular basis. But, I, you know, that's that was one of the greatest things that I learned that to utilize technology and software to kind of allow me to um, to be able to kind of brain dump, you know, to put things in software that I might otherwise forget. And, and actually, I find that whether you're neurotypical or neurodiverse, software is one of the biggest things that I think any business can do to increase efficiency and profitability. So I think that's one of the biggest things that it's given me um, alongside just, as I said, seeing things in a, in a creative way. You know, I, I was just always trying to do things differently. And I think that that's perhaps what has given me the perspective to solve um, problems in, in others' businesses as well. And that second part that I really want to cover is you've mentioned it several times, Louis, in the course of this conversation that you are really passionate about the environment and conservation and sustainability. And this is something important to a lot of business owners out there. But a lot of business owners, I think, really struggle with the concept of what can they really do that can make a real difference. So can I just ask you the question in terms of your own views, in terms of being environmentally sustainable in business, what do you think business owners can really do that will make a difference? Sure. I mean, I, I think there's lots of different levels to sustainability, and I think it's it's quite a difficult word in a way because, you know, perfect and complete sustainability is is a very, very difficult thing to do. But I think that you know, ultimately, um, you know, quoting one of my favorite quotes, you know, nothing changes if nobody changes. So I, I think the most important thing is that in any way that we can, it's about making small changes. Now, as I said, in 09, we became a paperless office. 
that's just one example of something that we can do that is just a very, very small decision to not keep printing, not keep bundles and bundles of paperwork, and to try and digitize as much as we can within our businesses. I, th I think that's the first step. Second to that is to look at our environmental impact. And obviously, that differs from business to business, whether it's a service industry business or whether it's a product-based business. Obviously, for us, we um, <clears throat> all the way back in 07, you know, we were looking at our packaging and realized that actually, even back then, there was a huge availability of biodegradable solutions. Uh, you know, so this is 2007 when we got in touch with London Biopackaging and they'd already got quite a large catalog of products already available. So I think that more so now it's getting easier and easier and easier to look at that sustainability to start off with the small things our impact directly and and even in the smaller ways you know what what are we buying within our businesses how are we doing our purchasing you know even office supplies you know are we able to buy things that are sustainable or at least are more sustainable than what we're already doing so I, so i think it's it certainly is a difficult thing to to do and, and to transition into. But I just think that if we all make small changes and we all make those small decisions, of course, they equate into large changes. And I think that that's what I feel like we're seeing in the world. You know, when we started out, and I, I'm not going to name names, but we launched a product range called the Biting Back Bars, and it was all to do with raising awareness and funds for conservation. And so this was launched in 2006. And I remember somebody, a, a supermarket buyer from one of the very large supermarkets looking me straight in the eyes and saying, nobody cares. Now, thankfully, things are changing. And I think that we're seeing that in the world around us. I just think actually, you know, given that the climate that we're in, it's just a good business decision. You know, it, it's shown that more and more consumers every year want to buy off companies that are more sustainable. So, do it for yourselves, do it for the planet around you, but actually do it for your customers and, and your business because ultimately customers want to buy from businesses that are more sustainable and are prepared. You know, Research shows they are prepared to pay a little bit more for it. So use it as part of a brand narrative and a story and um, you know, join in with the responsibility that we all share in making our planet a little bit healthier um, every single day. Brilliant, Louis. A great response again. Some excellent and practical thoughts and ideas from you. So recording this podcast when we are, it would be wrong not to touch on the effects of COVID-19 and the real detrimental effect it is having on business and business owners. So as a business developer, Louis, working with a number of different businesses in a wide variety of industries, I'd just like to ask you to perhaps stop and reflect on what you think the current impact is but importantly, on a wider basis, what you think the long-term effects on business is going to be and, uh, and that effect on how we may do things going forward? Sure. So, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I have, like you said, seen a huge difference in businesses and clients and, and how COVID is affecting them. Um, I, you know, clients in the construction industry are being affected completely different to app-based technology businesses. So I think one of the main things that I'm seeing through COVID is that I feel like a huge amount of clients are starting to ask questions around digital. And, and I personally think that that's a very, very important thing. Um, I mean, just to give you 
an idea. I was on a on a group call, and there were about seventy five people on the call. Um, you know, in in various different industries, but mostly speaking. And I would say that eighty five percent of them had never used Zoom or Google Hangouts to communicate, uh, speak through, or or do business development through. So. I think that it has prompted a real deep discussion around digitization. I think that that's not just about software. It's not just about CRM systems. It's at the very fabric of what we do. I mean, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I've tracked down about 108 different pieces of software that I've used over the last sort of eight or nine years. There generally is a piece of software that will solve a problem in your business, no matter what that business is. And I think that it's no better time than right now to be looking at ways of digitizing and increasing efficiency through digital software, online marketing, digital marketing, and, and websites. I mean, again, I've got a partner um, who do websites. They build websites specifically for SME businesses. They've never been busier in their entire business history. So I think that there's a big question around digital and what people can do. I think second to that is just looking at business models. You know, it's it's about being agile and figuring out ways that we can actually do business in in a different way. And so, you know, I've I've got a couple of restaurant clients that have completely changed menus that are, you know, basically solely focused on delivery services. I've got clients who are very, very small catering businesses that are literally doing, you know, social distancing deliveries, but literally door to door. So I, so I think that there's an awful lot of businesses that have, have just remained agile and decided to look at the very nature of their business model and say, actually, what can we do? Now, I think that there is going to be a time when we go back to some normality, who knows when it's going to be. But I I hope that the long-term impact is digitization and efficiency through software and looking at business models at a deeper way. I think the other thing, and we talked about it earlier in the podcast, is building relationships that now is more than ever important because when we're all in a pretty scary environment in in most of our businesses, you know, I think it's probably safe to say that almost every industry has lost money. So I think the it's ever more important to build those relationships because much like friendships, when the going gets tough, the people who you've really got the relationships with and have made the effort with, they're the ones who are still there. You know, they're the ones that we're still in contact with. And, and I, I think it's very much like that with our businesses, that we need to realize more as a business community that we are a community. And so that, I guess, brings me on to my last point, and and that's to do with profits. You know, I, I think that for 90% of businesses this year, this isn't going to be a record profit-making year. It's just not going to be. And and I don't think, you know, I think most of us could agree on that. And so my I myself, and we've got a, a business growth um, sort of business that we use a huge amount of partners to, to deliver services through. We've slashed a lot of our prices. We've slashed a lot of our profits out of costs because really for us, the most important thing is, is about cash flow. And, and it comes back to that relationship thing. You know, I... I'm personally spending a lot less money as, as many people are, you know, sitting around the house and, you know, staring out the window for, for long hours. So I'm not actually spending as much money as I would be. So therefore, I am not making as much profit as I normally would because actually my lifestyle is costing less. And and I think that 
perhaps brings me on to the final point is is costing and, and awareness around your costings is I, you know, I've advised lots of clients to look at where they might be able to cut profits this year to keep cash flow coming in, to build relationships and to support clients, customers, and and to help build those relationships by, you know, being in, a, I guess, a state of empathy, really, that we're all struggling. And so why should I charge you know, my fees as I normally would when all of my clients and customers are, are struggling? Why should I be trying to um, almost make advantage of this? So, um, so yeah, I, th- I think that's my final point is just around having some empathy for the people around you, realizing that we are a community and realizing that the value of your business long-term is based on the um, depth of the, the relationships you build. And, and in this time, um, it's very important to realize that money is part of that and being able to say to customers and clients, look, I understand you're in a difficult position. So are we, so how about we both try and do business together, but it just might look differently and and the profit margins are going to be smaller, but that's okay because we all just want to keep cash flow flowing, um, you know, between our businesses. So, so I guess those are my thoughts, I guess in terms of the long term, it's very difficult to know, right now what long-term impact we're going to see but like i said i just referring back i hope that more and more clients start to look at their business models in in a deeper way and actually say what is our business going to look like in 10 years have we prepared and digitized enough have we looked at our business models and are we agile enough um you know, I mean, I recently had somebody on my podcast talking about agility and saying that it's not just giving the staff, you know, remote working for one day a week or, or you know, working from, you know, doing remote desking or whatever it might be, that agility actually comes down to empathy and respect. And, and the best example that was given is, I'm trying to remember, but I think it was the company that produced Cheetos. You might have heard this story before, Warren, I apologize if you have, but there's a, a so it was a story about the um, manufacturing company that make Cheetos in America. And they had a janitor who was from a Latin American background. And one day the janitor made a bit of a comment to the business and said, look, you know, I, I love working here. It's great. But you don't really have a product in the range that particularly focuses on the Latin American market. You know, Latin American market like things spicy. And so... Not only did they take his comments on board, they allowed him to go away and come up with some ideas, come back, pitch it to the board. They then decided to trial the product. And now that janitor works as one of the head product developers for the Latin American market. So that for me is agility. You know, it's it's the, the very basis of an organization. It's from the operational level up. And, and it's understanding that usually the people that are in our businesses closest to the problems are usually the best ones to solve it. So I, I think that there's a huge amount that I hope that the COVID situation will um, encourage business owners to look at engagement, to look at company culture, to look at agility and business models and, you know, and everything surrounding it. I mean, one of my big things that I talk about so much is export, you know, right now, Sure, things are difficult to to be exporting. You know, it's it's um, we, we're not able to travel. We're not able to communicate sometimes in, in as easy ways due to internet issues and and all sorts of things. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thinking about it now. I mean, I again just want to part with one last story. Um, I worked in Malaysia on on a sort of entrepreneur speaking tour for about three months, and I met a group of young guys 
who had started a very innovative um, instant noodle brand. And they were really struggling to get it into the Southeast Asian market. And I'd been living in Mexico on and off for a couple of years at that point. And I actually said to them, do you know what? I don't think I remember any instant noodle brands like this in Mexico. In fact, there's very few in the market. So their first order went from Malaysia to Mexico because I introduced them to the buyer. And, and the same for us. Our biggest export customer was Mexico, you know, ice to Eskimos. I mean, chocolate came from Mexico initially, and I fought actually going over there and doing a market visit for years. So sometimes your biggest opportunity is in the most unlikely places. And so I think that ever more than now, it's thinking about our business models and um, you know international expansion. I love that thought about how do we become more agile. To me, I mean, being agile sums up a lot about what we have to do right now. Uh, inspire and evolve. We've been talking a lot to our clients and our members about something that sums up a lot about what you're saying in the early part of that response, Louis, in that we've got to take this opportunity to get lean, and that includes using technology, but also use it as an opportunity to reset. Now, clearly, many businesses are in extremely difficult times and extremely difficult situations. That means they're being extremely frantic, just trying to cope with the consequences of COVID. But I really believe... If you're going to survive this in the long term, you're going to need to reset. And as we're a number of weeks in, we are starting to see now our clients and our members to use this time to reflect, to actually fundamentally look at their business model. And what is the business going to look like to them in the future? Now, having had a period of low but sustained growth since 2009, most businesses right now, if they're really honest, do appear to be a little fat and a little complacent, even if you're trying to be sharp and to be on your toes. Therefore, this has to be a time to get lean and reset, but also take the advantage of being entrepreneurial and be agile. And that is a great advantage that smaller independent businesses have over some of the large corporates. We can be agile, we can adjust our business models, and we can do something different the other side of this crisis. I also agree with you around relationships, Louis. And ever since 2004, when I founded Inspire, it's been about the long-term relationships to me. Uh, and long-term relationships are everything in business. We've also seen since taking our Evolve peer groups from being just a monthly meetup in a physical location to weekly online, those relationships grow and accelerate with greater depth. And we're seeing greater support being given to the members in those peer groups and some real collaboration going on and occurring. It's been really eye-opening and powerful to see. So, Louis, it's been great having you on as a guest. Thank you for your thoughts and your insights. Um, if people want to learn a little bit more about Louis, where can they go to uh, connect with you and hear more about what you're up to? Sure. So um, I, I guess um, social media, although I'm, I'm not a huge social media, I, I spend a lot of time doing it for clients and, and I think it's taken some of the shine off it for myself. But sure, I mean, you know, LinkedIn, I, I love to connect and hear from people. Um, my own website, louisbarnett.org. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on pretty much every social media channel uh, and certainly always open to, to receiving sort of messages and, you know, talking to people. Thank you, Louis. As I said, it's been great to have you as a guest on the podcast. I hope you keep safe, hope you keep well. Um, and yeah, look forward to the opportunity of getting together in the real world sometime soon. 
uh, the other side of this lockdown. Take care. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Warren. There was some truly fascinating insights there from Louis about some ideas around the education system, overcoming adversity, the entrepreneurial mindset, and just building trust into your brand. His remarks about neurodiversity within a business were fascinating to me and certainly worth a larger discussion and exploration at some point in the future. I also love what he said about the importance of being part of a business community, especially during these challenging times. On that note, if you haven't already done so, then please do go to evolvemembers.com and do sign up for free. That free membership gives you access to great content and events, as well as a supportive network of business owners. You'll also have the opportunity there to join one of our peer groups, which clearly at the moment are being run over Zoom. But that sharing support of the members of these groups are really making a difference to them at this present moment in time. Please also remember that we have a very specific COVID-19 resources center at evolvemembers.com, which has been set up to give access to all in the business community to inform, support and inspire you during the current crisis. If you also go to inspireaccountants.co.uk, we've got everything there that you need to know about funding, government support and all of the other things to help you from a tax and financial perspective during the COVID-19 crisis. As ever, both Evolve and Inspire are here to support you and make sure that you can come out the other side of this current situation in a stronger, wider and more inspired place, both in your personal and professional life. We've also got some great webinars coming soon, so please do keep an eye on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram for announcements. And thanks again for listening. Until next time, from all of the Evolve team, please stay safe.